Hello, and thanks so much for tuning into the Digging Deeper podcast with Pastor Ken Vance. This podcast is designed to go a step beyond the Sunday teaching with a more in-depth look at the topic Pastor Ken shared with us this past weekend. So whether you're on your way home from work or pouring yourself a fresh cup of coffee, we hope you enjoy today's podcast. Make sure to hit that subscribe button so you don't miss the next episode. And now, here's Digging Deeper with Pastor Ken Vance. Hey, everybody, and welcome back. This is Pastor Ken, the senior pastor at Vertical Church, and this is our weekly podcast, Digging Deeper with Pastor Ken. I'm so glad you take the time out of your busy schedules to tune in and to really connect with us. These podcasts are designed for those who want to keep the conversation from Sunday morning going, to dig deeper into the truths of God's Word, and to share more about the revelation of what we're talking about so that, in essence, we can be established in the truths of God's Word. So I'm so glad to have these conversations and so thankful that people are finding these broadcasts truly a blessing. And so if you've been with us, we've been talking about, in the series of discussions this month, it's about the promise of the presence. Really, the heartbeat of what we're talking about is praise and worship. And the subject matter really has to do with something I've studied about for years, which is the restoration of the tabernacle of David. And every time I say that, it really causes sometimes people's minds to uh, kind of go blank or, or to get confused. And they say, no, 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 you mean the tabernacle of Moses. Because most people in reading the Bible are very familiar with the tabernacle of Moses. In fact, half of the book of Exodus is the directions and instructions about how that was to be crafted and designed. And then the people of Israel carried it with them through their time in the wilderness, and eventually it landed in the promised land with the people of Israel until it was replaced by the temple of Solomon. And so in essence, when you talk about the tabernacle of David, The tabernacle of David was a unique period of time. It was a transitional period between the tabernacle of Moses and the temple of Solomon. But more importantly, why this is relevant and why this is something that I'm talking about, because it is a picture of the church age. The Bible teaches us in the New Testament that the church age was a mystery hidden in God. What God had foreseen, what Jesus would accomplish and do, Jesus said, I will build my church, ecclesia, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The church was God's fulfillment of a promise because God had started something from the Garden of Eden. When mankind fell, when mankind sinned, God promised a redeemer, one that would come to restore the plan and purpose of God. Because when God created man, mankind was created by God in God's own image, in God's own likeness, which means as image bearers, we were to be the reflection of God in our world. We were to rule the earth in the love and power of God. In other words, in partnership, in union with God. What's fascinating is when you do a deeper study on this, when the Bible told Adam, that he was to work the garden. The word work there is used in the, in the Hebrew Bible for the duties of the priest. It's the word that's used consistently when the activities and duties of the priests were put in place. So in essence, what you see that mankind was originally created by God to be were royal priests. In other words, they were to be the liaisons, the ones that would rule the earth as conduits, as as those who brought about the will and purpose and plan of God. And priests are ones who have access into the presence of God. And so in essence, mankind from the Garden of Eden had unlimited access to the presence of God. God walked with Adam and Eve in the garden until sin entered the picture. And so when sin entered the picture, God started this plan of rescue right from the onset because in a cryptic word that was given to Adam and Eve right there at the point of when God judged the sin, he spoke to the serpent and said, the seed of a woman would come and crush his head. 
He would bruise his heel. In other words, he spoke of a struggle between the seed of a woman. And notice the Bible makes the, the language so clear, but it's clearer to us who have hindsight. It wasn't necessarily clearer to those who originally had it because God had a mystery. The Bible teaches us in the New Testament that if the, prince of the, the princes of this world, speaking of the demonic rulers and authorities, who Jesus truly came to confront through his death, burial, and resurrection, his victory, Jesus' victory over sin, Jesus' victory over the grave, had all to do with freeing mankind from the captivity of sin and Satan and to restore mankind into a place that God had originally designed man to be in. And so from the beginning, when he talked about the seed of a woman, he was talking about a virgin birth. He was talking about one who would come, the perfect human, who would come to fulfill God's plan of restoring this royal priesthood to mankind. We see as the Bible begins to unfold that that story began to find greater clarity. When God called the Abraham out of the other nations of the world to create his own nation, and he said, through Abraham, through your seed, here again, cryptic language from the Bible, through your seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. So in other words, God chose Abraham and the family that would form the nation that God had as his own heritage, God's own nation, the nation of Israel. From them would come the Redeemer. From them would come the one who would restore God's plan and purpose to the world. We get greater clarity as time progressed because David became an important component part to that. Because God said that through David, his son would be the one that would sit on the throne forever. Now, God couldn't have been speaking of Solomon. No, he was talking about a prophetic one who would come through the lineage of David. In other words, the Messiah became clearer. The king that Israel longed for would come from the lineage of David. And as the messianic uh, a movement or the, or the hope of Israel began to rest upon the one that would come, we see in essence the Bible. I love this. It's a unified story that leads us to Jesus. And so Jesus was God's fulfillment of the promise. Jesus came as the seed of Abraham. He came as the son of David. He came as the perfect human. That's why Jesus loved to call himself the son of man. The Son of Man was a reference both to the Messiah, but also that back reference to that fully human one, that one that was promised from the Garden of Eden that would destroy the work of the serpent, the work of sin and Satan that alienated mankind from the presence of God. And that's why in this series we're talking about the presence of God, something that's near and dear to the heart of God. And that is praise and worship. And why David is so remarkably important in Scripture is because David is a picture of the church age. David was a man after God's own heart. David learned that his destiny was bound to the living God. And when he worshiped God for who God is, it transformed David into who he was meant and designed by God to be. And it's a picture for you and I that when we learn to worship God for who he is, we are transformed into who we were meant to be. And that's why in picking up this theme, David also has a uniqueness to him because David was one of the only people under the Old Testament that had threefold anointing on his life. He had the anointing of a prophet, a priest, and a king. Now, most people uh, uh, see... David solely in the aspect of a king. But why I say that David had a prophetic anointing on him? Because the Psalms that David was uh, the author of, many of them are clear aspects of prophecy. When you look at Psalm 22, which David wrote, it is one of the most clear pictures of the sacrifice that Jesus would perform at Calvary. In other words, it was such a prophetic view of the suffering that the Messiah would need to go through to restore the people of God to God. 
It was what we would take to take away the sin of the world. And so in essence, David had parts uh, uh, that he wrote about that were in truth prophetic. So he had the anointing of a prophet. We see when we talked about last week, when David uh, established his tabernacle, that David wore the linen ephod. That was the garment of the priest. David was the true picture of a royal priest because most people who read the Bible understand and recognize that David was probably the most famous and the most noteworthy of all of the kings of Israel. He was, you know, the, the optimal in all of the lineage that Israel had as kings. David was number one. Although he had his flaws, although he had his weaknesses, he united the nation. He brought peace to the people of God. He subdued the enemies of Israel. But he brought uh, just a reverence for the things of God to the nation of Israel. David's heart longed for God. And that's why God, despite David's failures, said of him that he was a man after my own heart. And it is a good picture for us in the New Testament. Although we've been called out of darkness and into the marvelous light, although we are children of God, yet we still wrestle with sin. We still have things that we do that we're not proud of, that we're ashamed of, but yet we know that there is forgiveness with God. Yet we do not forget, as David wrote, I love this, Psalm 103, he said, do not forget all the Lord's benefits. He forgives all our sin. He heals all all our sicknesses. He redeems our life from destruction. He crowns us with his loving kindness and tender mercies so that our youth is renewed like the eagles. See, David sought the heart of God and God revealed things to him. In fact, David had the uniqueness like Moses. God showed David the plans, the uh, that what David uh, uh, crafted his plans for the temple that Solomon would eventually build. It was not Solomon that was given those plans. It was David. David, God gave a picture of heaven, just like he had given to Moses, because the articles that were built were representative of things that are in the throne room of God. Why would I say that? Because when Isaiah was caught up into the throne room, he was overwhelmed by the presence of God and said, Woe am, me. Woe am I, a man of unclean lips amongst a people of unclean lips. And I've seen the Lord of hosts. I've seen the God of glory. And one of the angels that were there flew with a, a flaming coal off the altar and touched his lips and said, You are clean. And so in essence, all of the articles that we find in the uh, uh, tabernacle of Moses, which were recreated and recrafted for the temple of Solomon, are in truth representations of those things that are in heaven. And that's why praise and worship is at the heart of this, because it was at the tabernacle of David that what we know today as praise and worship, David was the one responsible to bring the instructions, the revelation, the understanding of worship, which is near and dear to the heart of God, the instructions for that for the nation of Israel and for the church world today. Because one of the fascinating things that we need to understand is that at the cross of Jesus Christ, many of the things from the Old Testament were um, finalized. They were completed. Jesus fulfilled the law. We're not under the law of Moses. The law of Moses was temporary. It was never intended by God to be uh, uh, eternal. Why would I say that? Because God had prophesied that it was coming a day he would set a new, a new covenant. He said both through the prophet Jeremiah and through the prophet Ezekiel that he would make a new covenant. No longer would in, in, in hearts of stone with as a reference back to God writing his law on the tablets of stone, but no, he would write his law on the tables of our heart. In other words, Jesus established one law and the law that Jesus established in the New Testament actually cover all of the moral implications that God ever desired for the nation of Israel to fulfill. Jesus' law to love God with all our heart, with, with all our soul, with all our mind, with all our strength, and to love one another, to love our neighbor as ourselves. In other words, 
Jesus even made it even clearer, more simple, the night of the Last Supper. He said, love one another as I have loved you, so must you love one another. And love is the fulfillment of the law. So in essence, Jesus came and Jesus, like David, had the anointing of the prophet, the priest, and the king. That's why the New Testament tells us that Jesus was a priest after the order of Melchizedek. That Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And Jesus came as a prophet because he said of himself that no prophet is accepted in his own home. So Jesus, David is a foreshadowing. David is a type of the church age because Jesus would become the king. And the tabernacle that David designed gave access to the presence of God to every day people. And the truth of the New Testament, the beauty of what God did through Jesus Christ is that he gave everyday human beings access to his presence. No longer was there a barrier between God and man. No longer, like it was in the tabernacle of Moses, would there would be a, th a thick curtain in the inner sanctum, the Holy of Holies on the inner place. No longer would only the the high priest once a year be able to go behind that curtain and be in the presence of God. Or as it was in the temple of Solomon, same deal. Holy of holies, thick curtain, only accessible to the high priest once a year. It's in this unique period, which the tabernacle of David took up about 40-year period of time. It was uh, during the reign of David when he had become the king over all Israel, when he had established Jerusalem as the capital of Israel, that he sought out the, the tabernacle, or not the tabernacle, I should say. He sought the Ark of the Covenant. And why is that important? That's what we talked about last time. The Ark of the Covenant represented where the presence of God was. And at that unique period of time, the Ark of the Covenant was not in the tabernacle of Moses. It had been kept in a city called Kedjeth-Jerim, which was the city in the woods. It was a place in Judah near Bethlehem, but it was kind of hidden away. The people of Israel had become scared, and therefore they had brought it to the house of Abinadab, who was in himself a priest. But David longed for the ark because it represented the presence of God, and he wanted to bring that to Jerusalem. He wanted God's presence near him. Although the daily sacrifices and all the, the ordinances established by Moses that would go on in the tabernacle of Moses was going on, it was all going on without the Ark of the Covenant, which meant that it was going on without the presence of God, which gives us a picture of how we can go through religious duties and ceremonies and, and dictates without actually experiencing the presence of God. And that's why this, this, this subject we're talking about is so important. In fact, Acts 15 again, the apostle James gave the final verdict with regard to the Gentile nations. And he took this obscure passage from the prophet Amos and said, God said, I will turn and rebuild the tabernacle of David, not the tabernacle of Moses and not the temple of Solomon, but I will turn and rebuild the tabernacle of David. And why was that significant? Because all of the other nations who seek the Lord would be found there. There would be a way to reach the nations of the earth. And the presence of God is like nothing else because when we experience the presence of God we're overwhelmed by the love of God we're overwhelmed by the awesomeness of this God who is untamable all-powerful that he has provided the means by which we can enter in to his presence and today in talking about it I want to talk about the the instructions that David prescribed for worship because in essence, as Jesus said, God seeks worshipers who worship him in spirit and in truth. And both of those elements were a part of David's tabernacle. In fact, David took a part of the priesthood and he established them as worshipers because they had skills and they had abilities, but they also, they were given an anointing. 
whereby they could prophesy. In other words, they could be under the inspiration of the Spirit. Because the simplest definition for prophecy is inspired utterance. Things spoken or things done under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. When David established this end, 1 Chronicles 25 tells us, David, together with the commanders of the army, set apart some of the sons of Asaph. Asaph was one of the Levites. And Hermon, Hermon was another of the tribes of the Levites and Jupiter. And for the ministry of prophesying, accompanied by harps and lairs and cymbals. And then he goes on. Here is a list of the men who performed the service. This is 1 Chronicles 25, verses 1 through 3. It said, The sons of Asaph, uh, Zerkar, Joseph, Nathaniel, Azariah, the sons of Asaph were under the supervision of Asaph, who prophesied under the king's supervision. Notice that, that the king and the priest worked together for the service of the tabernacle of David. And as Japheth and his sons uh, Gedriel, Yerzi, Jeziel, Shimi, Habashiah, and Methaniah, six in all, under the supervision of their father, Judith, Judith um, who prophesied using the harp in thanking and praising God. In other words, listen carefully. The Spirit of the living God had given them inspiration both in their singing and in their playing. Notice that the worship that David uh, established before the Ark of the Covenant, before the presence of God, was both singing and with instruments. And they were under the inspiration of the Spirit of God. And that's why it's critical and important for us to understand what's the relevance to us, to know and understand what Jesus accomplished for you and me. As New Testament believers, we must recognize that Jesus' fulfillment of the promise that God had originally given to restore his plan, that we would be royal priests to rule and reign in the authority and love and power of the living God. The Bible tells us in 1 Peter 2, verses 9 and 10, it says, you are a chosen people, speaking here of the, of the age of the church. He says, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So in essence, our identity as New Testament believers is that we are a royal priesthood. We are a holy nation. We are God's own special people, his family, the ones that were given the responsibility to declare his goodness, to declare his, his greatness to the nations of the world, to show forth his praise, to declare the greatness of who God is, to worship God for who he is without shame or without result. I love this in Revelations 1, 5, and 6. It says concerning Jesus, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and has made us kings and priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So in essence, for the believer, Jesus washed us in his own blood from our own sins. But what did he do? He made us kings and priests unto our God. That's the role of a New Testament believer. Like David was, when he took off his royal robes and put on the priestly robes, he danced and praised and worshiped God before the ark of God's presence, that we as the people of God, whatever our callings are in life, whatever responsibilities we have and we do out in the workplace, out in the marketplace, out in God's service, God, using God's gifts to make our world better, when we come together, when we come into the presence of God, we take off those royal robes and put on the garments of priests. 
because the priest is the one who has free access to come into the presence of the living God. And we come there to do what? We come there to worship him who alone is worthy. We come there to declare his greatness. We come there because why? Worship is near and dear to the heart of God. I don't want to get ahead of myself. Next week, we're going to talk about the realization that Jesus taught us to pray that thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Well, the New Testament gives us a picture of what heaven is like. What, what are they doing in heaven? But again, I'm not going to get ahead of myself. We need to understand what Jesus has accomplished for us. He made us a kingdom of priests. He's made us a royal priesthood. He has fulfilled God's purpose and plan for mankind. He restored man to his original position to be a royal priest, to have dominion. And Jesus told us, all authority has been given to me both in heaven and in earth. Now you go in my name. That's what it means to be the body of Christ. We have the authority that Jesus Established through his death, burial, and resurrection. When Jesus decimated hell and took back the keys of the kingdom, when he took back the keys of death, hell, and the grave, he, he in turn authorized and gave authority to us as believers that now in his name we can cast out devils. In his name, we can lay hands upon the sick. In his name, we can have the dominion that God designed for humankind to rule the earth in the love and power of God. But listen to this. It's important to understand, because when you ask the question regarding praise and worship, why are there not more instructions in the New Testament with respect to praise and worship? Why is there just, you know, small amounts of, of passages and most of it is not all that instructional? Well, it's because of this. Listen, in Colossians 3.16, it says, Let the message of Christ dwell in you richly, as you teach and admonish one another in all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. In other words, the reference here is to psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Because what we need to recognize and understand, at the cross of Jesus Christ, certain things from the Old Testament passed away. Some things came through the cross and were changed, like the office of the prophet. The prophet was under the Old Testament, but only the prophet was responsible to foretell the, the plan and purpose of God for the nation. The New Testament prophet is not doesn't have that role. The New Testament prophet is to speak to people to edification, exhortation, and comfort. In other words, the role of the prophet still exists in the New Testament. It's just not like it was in the Old Testament. And that's where there's confusion. That's where there becomes some areas in the, in the body of Christ that can be um, areas of controversy because some try to establish the role of the prophet for the New Testament from Old Testament passages. No, that's something that going through the cross changed. But there are some things that came through the cross, some that were eliminated, some that were changed, and some things remained unchanged. And one of the things that remained unchanged from the Old Testament to the New was the issue of praise and worship. Partially because it wasn't established with the Sinai Covenant. It wasn't established. But what we know today as praise and worship, what became a part of the culture of the nation of Israel, didn't come from Moses. It came from David. It came during this era. In fact, the book of Psalms, the overwhelming majority of the uh, writings that, that were collected and made what's called the book of Psalms. Half of them or more were from David, but the rest of them, the overwhelming majority, I should say, came during this period when the priests and the, these Levites were given the responsibility to worship 24-7 before the Ark of the Covenant. There were shifts, there was roles that they filled, but they kept praise and worship going. And it was in that time that inspiration came and instructions came. And that's what I want to take a time to look at because again, New Testament worship, Ephesians 5 verses 18 through 20 says, do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. 
And what does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? See, life in the New Testament should be life inspired by and empowered by the Holy Spirit. And that's what the writer here, what Paul is making mention to, to these followers of Christ in the city of Ephesus. He says, be filled with the Spirit. And I love it because it's a play on words. He says, actually be being filled. In other words, it's a continual experience. And when, if you ever do this study, this is unique. If you ever want to look at this on a deeper level, if you tie these terms, fill with the Spirit, according to the New Testament, and look at every reference in the New Testament where it is, you will find it is always tied to speaking. Being filled with the Spirit is tied to speaking. And here it says, be filled with the Spirit, speaking, how? To one another in psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing and making music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. So in essence, the New Testament gives us the realization that we should worship God, we should praise God, but we should do so under the inspiration and anointing of the Holy Spirit of God. I love it because he, he likens being filled with the Spirit to being drunk on wine. And why is that significant? Because people who drink alcoholic beverages, they drink wine, many times it makes people relax and makes people lose their fears, their inhibitions. And when we come into the presence of God under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, we should not be looking around at what other people will think of us. We should express our love for God openly, unashamedly. We should be willing to raise our hands. We should be willing to, to sing with our voices, not subdued. We should be willing to shout and to praise and to give God the glory that is due his name. And so it is important for us to recognize because worship's instructions are the guides that lead us to the heart of God. David was the one whom they came through. And it, are, it's, it is the instructions of worship that guide us and lead us to the heart of God. So I want to end our time with talking about seven Hebrew words for the word praise. Because these are God's clear instruction. These are what God designed and created for us to understand what it means to praise God according to spirit and in truth. In other words, it's not just what we feel or it's not just what we sense, but what is the truth? It, 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 spirit and truth recognizes that the Holy Spirit works within the confines of the word of God. The Holy Spirit doesn't work outside of the barriers of God's word. When the Bible says that the work of the Spirit would be like rivers of living water coming out of us, well, rivers have channels that they flow through. In other words, God's Word is the, creates the channels that the Spirit flows through. And it's important to have both because there are crazy things that people attempt to say, oh, I'm just worshiping God. They may feel something, but it's not necessarily according to the truth. And true worship that God seeks is in spirit and in truth. And so David, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, in writing these things, gives us a clear delineation and understanding of what it means to truly praise God, to worship God as God desires. Now, what's unfortunate for us when we read the when we read in English the book of Psalms, we can miss this because in the book of Psalms, there are seven Hebrew words that are translated into the English Bible, praise, but that are seven separate and distinct Hebrew words. So I want to go through them. The first one is the word yada, yada. And it literally means to extend the hand, to throw forth the hand. It comes from a celebration, a sense of cheering. It comes, the word yada comes from the word Judah. The word Judah is the word in, uh, uh, for praise. When uh, Leah had the fourth son of Jacob, she named him Judah because she said, now I praise God for he has seen my affliction and given me another son. That was the, the, the wife of Jacob that he didn't actually want to marry. His father-in-law had deceived him into marrying Imagine having to be that woman. That's horrible. Jacob made it 
very clear that he loved Rachel. And, but he had, God gave Leah children. In fact, six of the tribes of Israel came from Leah. God sees our afflictions. When others don't exalt you, when others don't seem to love you, know this, that the God who made you, the God who created you, loves you more than any human being could ever love you. And truly, when you know and understand God's love and God's favor that's upon your life, you will in truth praise God. And so the word Judah, in fact, it's interesting when the nation of Israel, after the death of Joshua, were, were fulfilling the, the purpose of you know, subduing the promised land, they asked the, the, the question of God, who should go up first? What tribe should go up first? And God said Judah should go up first, which is a prophetic picture for us that when we go out into the things of God, praise should go up first. Because we, we fight not with weapons of warfare as the world knows them, but the weapons of warfare that we have are mighty through God for the pulling down of strongholds, the casting down of imaginations. And there's something powerful that when you praise God for who he is, God shows up in a mighty way. And the things that we can't defeat on our own, they are nothing. They are no match to our God who loves us and even more intimately who is our Father. So yada, it's when we, we celebrate who God is. We would understand this in modern context that fans, whether the football fans, baseball fans, people who are sports fans tend to understand what this word yada means because when something fantastic happens, people cheer, they celebrate, they throw up their hands, they, they're excited. And that's what this word yada illustrates. It's an excitement. It's a celebration. It's a throwing up of the hands. It's like, yes, victory. Jesus, you are the greatest. You are the Lord of all. You are awesome. Yada. Yada means to extend the hands, to throw them up in excitement and praise. It's a response to God's greatness. So one of the ways we worship God is yada. We throw forth our hands. Now, the second one is the word toda, toda. And it means to extend the hand, but in a sacrificial way. It is the sacrifice of praise. In other words, I lift my hands. Why? Because God's worthy. It has nothing to do with how I feel. It has nothing to do with what I'm going, what's going on in me emotionally. In this moment, I stand and worship God because He alone is worthy. I believe in who He is. And I may not feel right now what's going on, but I trust in him. I believe in him. And I lift up my hands as a sacrifice of praise. It shows honor. It shows worth. It shows esteem. It shows God that we believe that he is worthy. And so Todah represents the realization that we lift our hands whether we throw them up as yada or whether we lift them as an extension of honor and acclaim because Jesus is our king and we lift our hands in honor of his greatness and glory. We lift our hands to the one true and living God, our father, who is mighty to save, who is great and worthy of praise. I think of Paul and Silas when they were in the prison at midnight, it says in Acts in Act 16, that they sang praises unto God. I got to see, I got to believe that Silas and Paul were in those moments, toda. They were lifting hands, not because they felt like it, because the Bible tells us their backs were bleeding. They were beaten and thrown into the inner part of the prison. Their feet were put in stocks. They were in pain. They were in discomfort, but yet they praised God. And you know what God did? God shook that prison. All of their chains came off. How much I think about it, if in those times when the enemy has sought to uh, alienate us, to separate us, to discourage us, to, to get us to be disheartened and give up, to let go, what would happen in those moments if we raised our hands because God alone is worthy? What happened if we todah, we we worshiped God because we believed in who he is and what he's promised truly will come true. I may not see it with my eyes, but I walk by faith and not by sight. See, worship 
is the voice of faith. Worship is believing that God is, even when you don't see one ounce of it around you, that you believe he's faithful, that you believe he's trustworthy, you believe that he will come through. We worship God because of what we believe, who we believe he is, and what we believe he will do on our behalf. And so we yada, we toda. Notice both of these are an extension of the hands. It always made me uh, laugh a bit that when people first get saved and come along believers and they start to see people raise their hands, it's like, hmm, not something I'm used to in church. And then how this kind of progression goes out that when people first begin to worship God, you know, they, they start to lift their hands, but they're kind of at their waist. The more comfortable they get, maybe they lift their hands up to their, the, the, you know, to the, uh, um, as far as their shoulders. But there comes a point of freedom when you don't really care what anybody else thinks. You close your hand, you close your eyes, you lift your hands, and you said, "Mighty is the Lord." And if I'm the only one lifting my hands, I don't care because God alone is worthy. Next word for he in the Hebrew for the word praise is the word barak. Barak. It means to kneel down, to bow in honor. See, the ultimate acknowledgement of who God is, is to kneel to the king. Because if he is in truth, the holy and mighty one who is so worthy of praise and honor, there comes a point where you're just overwhelmed at the majesty and glory and power and greatness of who he is, that you bow down, that you bend your knee, that you prostrate yourself before the living God. The Bible tells us of the four and 20 elders that are around the throne of God, that they unashamedly bow down and prostrate themselves before the living God and cast before him their crowns, which is a representation of what they've achieved, what they've accomplished. And they lay it all before the Lord of heaven because they recognized that they, nothing would have been, been possible if God himself hadn't made it possible, that everything we have truly comes from God and it is for God. We were created by him and for him. So it should not be a problem for us to barak, to bow our knee, to honor the true king, to prostrate ourselves at times, to say, you alone are God. See, these are the instructions of what praise and worship looks like to the heart of God what God longs for to see among his people. The next one, I love this, the word halal. We get the word hallelujah from this word, and it literally means this. Listen to the definition. To make a show, to celebrate, to act clamorously foolish. You ever see people who are really excited about something? Somebody who's like unashamed, I'm a fan. They call them fanatics. The word fan is short for fanatic. But the word halal can be illustrated when David came in with the people of Israel, bringing the Ark of the Covenant to the city of Jerusalem, to the tent that he had pitched for. He unashamedly danced and shouted and praised God, whereby his wife, Michael, the daughter of Saul, thought it was undignified. Oh, that's no way for a king to act. But David said it was before the Lord that I was doing this. And if you think it's bad now, babe, you ain't seen nothing yet because God is worthy. I'm not going to contain myself. I'm not going to let the joy of who he is and what he's done for me to not be celebrated. I will be foolish in the eyes of others to honor the Lord my God. In other words, I'll shout, I'll cheer, I'll jump, I'll leap, I will dance before my God because he alone is worthy. It's the word halal. And we get the English word hilarious from it because it's joyful. It's so, if you've ever been to a party where there's joy, people have no problem dancing and celebrating and having a good time. The presence of God, the Bible tells us that in God's presence, there is fullness of joy. Fullness of joy. And that's why when we're in the presence of God, we can rejoice, we can have fun. It is absolutely freeing to know that the God of heaven loves us and because of Jesus, he's freed us that now we can live in his presence. We can honor and reverence him for who he is, but not cower in fear, but rejoice and revere 
the one true and living and holy and awesome God and to know that he loves us. Man, when that gets inside of you, you can't help but halal. You can't help but be clamorously foolish that the God who made the heavens and the earth knows my name and loves me and has a plan for me. Man, that is worthy of honor and praise. And then the next word is the word tehillah, tehillah. And it literally comes from the word halal. It means to sing of halals. Songs, listen, songs of spontaneous praise. These are what the New Testament would call spiritual songs. Songs that are inspired by the Spirit. Songs when all of a sudden it wells up inside of you how good God is, how much God loves you that, you, that you give vocalization to your feelings and emotions and all that you're feeling inside. It's the Spirit that comes to give expression to this through our lips of clay in a way that is honoring to our God. And what's, what's exciting to me, in Psalm 22.3, it says God inhabits or God is enthroned upon the praises of his people. It's the word tehela, tehela, and it means those spontaneous songs of praise. When God becomes so real, when God becomes so awesome to us that our lips can't hold back, we praise God for the majesty and wonder and beauty of who he is, and our lips will not hold back. We express our love and devotion to him. God is enthroned in that place. God inhabits that form of praise. Times of spontaneous free praise are something so important, so special to the God of our salvation, to the Lord of heaven, to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. God says, I am enthroned. When my people don't have to put on, they don't have to sing off a... Off a um, a sheet of music. They don't have to sing off of screens. They can close their eyes. And I'm so real to them that flowing out of their lips is their thanksgiving and honor to me because of who I am to them, how real I am to them, that their praise is spontaneous. You ever think about it? When you first fall in love, it's no problem telling the person you love how much they mean to you, how easy it is for the words to flow from you. Well, that should never stop in our love for God. In fact, our love for God should become more and more intoxicating. The older we grow, the more we learn about God. It's like a fine aged bottle of wine that the older it becomes, the more intoxicating it should be. And it's the ease in which we should be able to share the greatness and goodness of who God is and all, and remembering all the things he's done for us. The thanksgiving should flow from our lips without any need of having to truly uh, put on anything. It should flow naturally, that there is a level of spontaneity that I let the halals come forth from my mouth. The next two words are simple. The word shabach, shabach, which means to shout, a loud address, a voice of triumph. In other words, worship that God enjoys isn't quiet. It's loud. Because we're going to see next week when we talk about this aspect of Worship as it is in heaven. See, Jesus taught us to pray, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And when you get a picture of heaven, you see people who are shouting and letting God know in a loud voice. In fact, I love this. Isaiah said this in Isaiah 6, that the seraphim that are around the throne of God, the guardians of God's throne, shout with a loud voice, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, so loud so boisterous that it shakes the door frames of heaven. That's loud. That's amazing. So shouting, addressing God with a voice of triumph is a form of worship that's near and dear to the heart of God. It's part of those seven Hebrew words that give us instructions about praise. And then the last one is the word zamar. Zamar. It means to sing and praise God with music, to play musical instruments. People who say, oh man, I can't believe, why is there guitars in church? Why is there pianos? Why is all of these things? When you look back into the ages of Christianity in the past, sometimes people had difficulties with instruments being in the house of God because they associate it with the things of the world. But how many have ever thought of this? Satan is a thief, that he steals what is right from God. He doesn't create anything. He only perverts things. No, the instruments 
are intended to be used in the house of the Lord. That's what Psalm 150 makes clear. It says, with all these different forms of instruments, let them praise God. And then he also says this, and let everything that has breath praise the Lord. So in other words, God loves praise. It draws us to his heart. David was a man who is after the heart of God. He's the one that God gave the revelation and instructions of worship through. It's the one who developed it. That's why David developed the tabernacle that he did, was to be near and dear to the heart of God. It was to be in the presence of God continually. And he discovered something important, that worship brings us into the presence of the living and true God. That's why what God is doing in this hour, it's so important to recognize. Why is he restoring the tabernacle of David? Because he wants his presence to be experienced by all mankind. And when the church is doing her part, when the church is living as royal priests, when we are coming into the presence of God and inviting others to come along with us, when we worship God, we create a throne for him to sit upon. When we draw near to God, God says, I will in truth draw near to you. And that's why worship's instructions are guides that lead us to the heart of God. I hope this broadcast was helpful to you. I hope you're hungry to learn more about this. We're going to pick up next week talking about as it is in heaven. Till then, this is Pastor Ken. Rebuild the tabernacle of David, that worship that is so passionate, that worship that's unashamed, that worship that says, I don't care what you think. It is before the Lord my God that I dance and sing. I'm a priest unto my God. His presence is my treasure. That's what my heart longs for. And that's why the church age, David represents this because he was a royal priest. You and I, through Jesus Christ, have been made priests unto our God, a royal priest. We have been called out of darkness and into his marvelous light that we might show forth his praises. And so that's where we're going to leave off this week. We're going to come back in our next discussion and talk about the instructions of praise and worship. Because again, it was during the time of David that what we know about praise and worship today, these instructions came to us through David. They weren't changed. Even though Jesus established a new covenant, a better covenant with better promises, something that didn't change at all was praise and worship. Why? Because God didn't institute it under Moses. God brought about it during this period of time called the, you know, the, the line of David, the time of David, but the tabernacle of David. This 40-year period in the nation of Israel's history was significant because it was during that time that the instructions for praise and worship were revealed to us through David. And those are things that we still need to understand and know today. Because again, Jesus said these words, the Father seeketh those to worship Him, who worship Him in spirit and in truth. Till next time, this is Pastor Ken.